For those of you who haven't been to the front page of the web, well, I can't even talk today. Wow. Website recently. Um, we will be theoretically, assuming that things act, cruises actually happen, we will be hosting a wellness retreat and conference. Now, I know that doesn't work for you, Roxanne. Sorry. Um, since since you're in, in Austria. But for those of you who are in the U.S., especially on the eastern side, because we will be leaving out of Orlando, I believe. <laughs> it's been a while since I made these reservations. It's either Orlando or Tampa. I'm pretty sure it's Orlando. Um, uh, so it should be fun. It can be up to 30 CEUs. So if you need face-to-face -face CEUs, you can do it. Call it an early, um, what's, what's your majiggy? An early Valentine's Day. Whatever. So you can learn more at allceus.com slash if that's something that tickles your fancy. I love cruising. I can't wait to get back on the open on the open waters. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on counseling tools or life hacks for chronic pain management. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Now we're going to be talking about pain at first, the first like seven slides, I believe, give you a history of why it's important to consider addressing pain. Then we're going to get into the real nitty gritty of what we can do to help people with their pain um, that's not pharmacological in nature because most of us, if not all of us, are not prescribers. So we're going to define the problem. We'll examine the similarities between chronic non-cancer pain, mental health issues, and addiction. We're going to look at how those overlap and some of the similar symptoms. We'll identify the impact of chronic non-cancer pain on patients and explore biopsychosocial resource needs for secondary and tertiary prevention. Primary prevention means obviously keeping the pain from ever happening. Secondary prevention means keeping the pain from, you know, getting worse and, you know, we want to help them halt it right there. And tertiary prevention means keeping the pain from causing additional problems like the development of addiction or depression or things like that. Historically, pain without an apparent anatomical or neurophysiological origin was labeled as psychopathological. This approach is damaging to the patient and provider alike. So basically, a lot of times in the past when pain origin couldn't be identified, it was, you were told it was all in your head. And that was very damaging and caused a lot of mutual distrust and demoralization to the patient who feels at fault, disbelieved, and alone. We've come to realize that many unexplained events and pains are now understood to involve interplay between neurophysiological symptoms systems that have gone awry. And there are a lot of different systems, and we don't have time to cover all of them here. But it's important to recognize that even if we can't say, oh, you had an injury and that's what's causing that pain, or, you know, you've got rheumatoid arthritis and that's what's causing that pain. If someone has pain, we need to recognize that it exists. We've found a lot of correlations, and I'm probably going to talk about this a bunch, between depression and systemic inflammation, as well as trauma and systemic inflammation. So that systemic inflammation is kind of diffuse and it may cause pain in, you know, different places. People may have 
pain that moves around depending on where they're carrying it at the moment. I know when I get really stressed, sometimes I hunch my shoulders and there are times when, you know, I'm really lopsided because one side is a lot tighter than the other. I've got to stretch it out. Other times when I'm really stressed, I grind my teeth. So the pain is localized more here. You know, people carry their pain in different places and it is important to just validate that, okay, you're in pain. What can we do about it? Instead of arguing or trying to dispute with them whether that pain is real or not. Adjustment disorder remains the most appropriate, accurate, and acceptable diagnosis for people who are overly concerned about their pain or have pain-related anxiety. A lot of times when people come to us and they are struggling and the cause of that struggle, the cause of that anxiety or depression, but especially with anxiety, the way the DSM's written, is a specific incident. It's not diffuse. It's not multiple things. Um, it, it is focused around their anxiety. We have a hard time finding a DSM diagnosis that actually fits. And in order to, to bill for services, we have to have a diagnosis. So the research has indicated that adjustment disorder is often the best diagnosis because remember with generalized anxiety disorder, people have to be worried about multiple things over, you know, a course of, a course of time, uh, yada, yada. So if it's focused exclusively or almost exclusively on pain, we may look at adjustment disorder as opposed to generalized anxiety. But it is important to remember that depression and uh, persistent depressive disorder, I'm old school, I still want to call it dysthymia, but it's persistent depressive disorder, um, can be concurrent diagnoses with chronic pain. So we do want to make sure that we're identifying those. We also want to look at, you know, some of the sources of pain, you know, identifying any trauma or PTSD that also may be underlying uh, the systemic dysfunction. Chronic non-cancer pain patients with addictive disorders are about 32%. When people are in pain, they are looking for a way to make the pain stop. Whether it is emotional or physical, they need that pain to stop. And unfortunately, when people take opioids and they're on opioids for a long period of time, I'm not talking three days post-op, but if they're on opioids for an extended period of time, their brain says, oh, you're getting way more opioids from that outside source than you need. So I don't need to produce the endogenous opioids. And then when clients are tapered off of their opioids or heaven forbid, quit cold turkey, their pain tolerance is down in the floor because their body is not making those natural painkillers anymore. And it takes a while for the brain to register, oh, I need to turn that system on again. Tapering is really, really essential if someone has been on opioid medication and depending on who you talk to, it could be as few as seven days that they can start developing a little bit of a tolerance, if you will, to those opioids. Some say it's longer than that, but definitely if you're talking more than two weeks, the brain has started to adjust and it's going to be important to taper the person very slowly most of the time. And even when we taper people off of uh, medication-assisted therapy, opioids, it's done very, very slowly because the brain has to catch up. People over 20 um, 
with pain lasting for more than three months is about 56%. So that's more than half of adults, more than half of people over the age of 20 have chronic pain that lasts for more than three months. Oh my gosh. We need to pay attention to what's going on in this population because a lot of people either don't complain or they're not taken seriously or they're seen as drug seeking because, you know, everybody is all about, you know, oh my gosh, you're seeking opioids right now. That's not necessarily the case. And there are a lot of different causes of pain. And it's important to recognize that a lot of people don't seek pain. Number one, Culturally, it might be not be appropriate to seek pain. They may see this pain as, you know, caused by something that they did or punishment or whatever. They may not have the time to go to the doctor and, you know, they anticipate having to argue with the doctor about, especially if it's a nonspecific pain, about what it is and go through all the tests. They may not be able to afford it. You know, going through all those tests can be really expensive. So there's a lot of different um sociological issues, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, that may keep people from seeking pain, from, from seeking help for their pain. And, and it's really important to recognize that. There are a lot of people who get up and suck it up every day despite the pain, and they don't realize that, you know what, there are things that we can do, and that we're going to get there. People who have had disabling pain in the previous year 36%. Now that doesn't mean, you know, disabling for weeks and months at a time, but disabling to the point where they could not function for days at a time. You know, people who have chronic migraines, for example, sometimes there are a couple of days in a row that they are sensitive to light, they're throwing up, they're in agony. Um, there are a lot of people who experience episodes of disabling pain. And then sadly, children with chronic pain. And you remember last week, I think it was, we talked about juvenile arthritis. And that is not uncommon. But when you add to juvenile arthritis, chronic pain conditions that are the result of autoimmune issues um, or even genetic issues, uh, you know, it can go up to 38%. It's also important to remember that as youth grow, they're going to have, and that's where the term comes from, growing pains. Youth are going to experience episodes of pain. Now, that doesn't mean we should ignore it. We should help them learn how to cope with it as best as possible and provide intervention when necessary. Youth should not be in agony, but it is important to recognize that youth sometimes will go through periods where they're, where they have some chronic pain for a little while. Pain may have a long course with multiple episodes. Chronic pain can be highly stressful for both the patient as well as the family. If you've got somebody at home who has chronic pain and they are not able to do what they want to do, they're experiencing anxiety, depression, irritability, or they just can't work or, you know, all of the above, that has an impact on the family environment that impacts everybody around them. Care for people with chronic pain is increasingly done in outpatient settings. So what do we need to make sure we do? We need to make sure that we provide the family the resources to be able to all 
cope with this condition in a healthy, functional way. Help them all address issues such as frustration or resentment or guilt or whatever it is. Untreated mood and addictive disorders in people with chronic pain increases morbidity and mortality rates and reduces the capacity for self-management. The more stressed out people are, the more depressed and hopeless and helpless they are. Guess what? The less motivated they are to engage in self-management. If they don't think it's going to help, if they feel like, you know, there's, there's no options, it's not going to get better. Why should they try? We need to use motivational interviewing. We need to help people identify exacerbating and mitigating factors. We need to help them figure out how to have a rich and meaningful life as they define it and, or despite whatever you want to say, also having periodic episodes of pain. Chronic pain due to one condition can cause increases in systemic inflammation and widespread pain. Pain itself is an indication of inflammation. And when there is inflammation in one area, you know, that can lead to more inflammation systemically. Across chronic pain conditions, there's generally a shift away from brain regions engaged in processing the sensory component. So we quit paying as much attention to actually what we're feeling and toward regions that encode emotional and motivational subjective states. So instead of focusing as much on the pain itself, the, the feeling of the pain, people are focusing on their frustration, their sense of helplessness and their level of motivation for self-care as well as for life. It is really, really important that we help people do things like add happy to their life. And I know you've heard me say that before and some of you may still be rolling your eyes, but it's important. We, I use that analogy all the time of a bath and when people are in pain, they are running like wide open hot water and it's going to get too hot and it's going to be uncomfortable. Well, sometimes you can't, the valve is broken and you may not be able to turn the hot water off. So what you can do to make it more tolerable sometimes is add cold water. Same sort of thing with our neurotransmitters, with our moods. Sometimes things may really suck and you know, that hot water is wide open and we can't change it. However, we can also add some happiness in there in order to sort of balance out, artificially force our body to secrete some endorphins and some serotonin. One of the easiest things, I saw it when I was at the gym today up on one of the TV screens, they were showing one of those YouTube videos where somebody tore a piece of paper and this little baby just thought it was hysterical and did that little baby belly laugh until it toppled over. And it was the funniest thing. Um, I don't know why I find little babies laughing so amusing, but laughter is contagious um, and, and they're so innocent and they just, they're so wide-eyed to see something that, you know, mundane and think it's, it's funny, I guess is why we find it amusing, but whatever. Encourage people to make a list of 10 things that make them happy. And it can be 10 things that they can do if they're bedridden, uh, 10 things they can do from their bed or from their house, you know. Have them make that list and encourage them to do at least one of those a day. Encourage them to identify times in the past week, in the past month, or even in the past year that they haven't been in as much pain or haven't been in pain and identify what was different. This will help increase motivation if they can see that, yes, you know, it's, I'm not 
in excruciating pain all of the time, every day, you know, those cognitive distortions there, if we can help them find the exceptions and identify things that they've done that have helped them feel better, even if it was just for an hour, if it was taking a bath, if it was watching a particularly engaging movie, if it was sitting outside and sunbathing, whatever it was that helped them maybe not make the pain go away, but switch their focus from those emotions of despair and helplessness to something else. It turned their attention. Any of those things that can help them uh, can help improve their emotional and motivational states. We also need to work with them when they're experiencing extreme pain or even moderate chronic pain, working with them on noticing, being mindful of their emotional and motivational states and focusing on what things what aspects of this situation can I control? Being mindful of what they need to do. Do they need to stretch? Do they need to move around? Do they need hot or cold pads? Do they need a massage pad? What is it that might help them at this point in time? And that's where that list comes comes in handy of things that they've done in the past that helped them even for a short period. If they have that list handy, they can go down that list and figure out, okay, you know, this actually might help me a little bit now. Experiences of physical and social pain, and social pain is social rejection, exclusion, bullying, negative social evaluation, or loss of relationships. So, you know, social distress. Share neurochemical and neural substrates. So when people are in pain and they feel rejected, they fear, they believe, they think they're mind reading, they're forecasting that other people are mad at them. That will increase those, that the, the HPA axis and increase the uh, stress neurochemicals. It's really important to help people um, identify what's going on and create environments and situations that are supportive of them. Young people with comorbid depression and chronic pain are at an increased risk of suicide. We need to be cognizant of that. Chronic non-cancer pain and addiction or mood disorders frequently co-occur and fluctuate in intensity over time and under different circumstances. So you may see periods where the addiction and the pain get better. You may see periods where they get a lot worse. You may see periods where the pain gets a lot worse, but the addiction may not because something else is constraining it. We don't want to assume that just because one is not present that it may not we, it, the person may not have another episode. Addiction, mood disorders, and chronic pain share neurophysiological patterns, including increased inflammation throughout the body as measured by inflammatory cytokines. And with COVID, we've all heard tons and tons about inflammatory cytokines. This is one thing that they can measure in blood tests. Addiction, mood disorders, and chronic pain also show Altered levels of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, and a hyperactive HPA axis. It's important to recognize how these things dovetail with one another. They may coexist, but they also, you know, it's important to recognize that they have similar issues. So if somebody has insufficient dopamine, insufficient serotonin, they may have pain or they may be depressed or they may be at risk of an addiction, or all three. So we do want to recognize in treatment, 
some of the things that we can do as clinicians is to help people reduce the hyperactivity or the dysregulation of their HPA axis, that threat response system, because that's going to help reduce some of the inflammatory cytokines and do things to uh, complementary things, not pharmacological. That's up to them and their, their physician or their psychiatrist. But there are complementary things we're going to talk about they can do to help stabilize their levels of dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. Effective pain management in patients with comorbid issues must address all conditions simultaneously. We can't expect to treat pain and not also address, you know, addiction or whatever else is going on because there's, it's a complicated interweaving of things. Common chronic pain conditions, low back pain, neck pain, upper back pain, arthritis, fibromyalgia, TMJ, Crohn's disease, migraines, you know, and this is just, these are common things. Another one I found in the uh, research literature was uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, and there was a word for it for, for menstrual pain. Um, there are a lot of different causes of pain and, you know, autoimmune diseases pretty much widespread, um, you know, across most of them, autoimmune diseases increase inflammation and have some aspect of them that increase pain. And we do want to be sensitive to that. Okay. So let's start talking about what we can do. <clears throat> Biopsychosocial impact of pain. Well, it impacts every area of people's stinking lives. Let's just put, put that out there. Super easy. <laughs> Super easy to recognize. It's going to impact everything. The cool thing, just like any other mood disorder or addiction, think of it like a woven blanket. No matter, or a sweater that, <laughs> that you dearly love and it has this little ragtag string coming off of it and you start pulling it. It doesn't matter where that string is. You start pulling it, guess what? That blanket or sweater is going to unravel. So I use the um, analogy of a blanket because a lot of times people, when they're experiencing pain or depression, they feel like they're being smothered by this situation. So pulling on that string, no matter where you start in the blanket, is going to start unraveling it and releasing re um, the blanket and making it you know, lighter and easier to cope with and eventually make it go away completely. That's all to say, let's start wherever the person is ready to start with. Generally, um, if we can help people address some of their physiological or cognitive issues first, it's going to have a greater impact. But it doesn't really matter whether you start with physiological or cognitive. It kind of depends on where the person's motivated to start. So, uh, the hyperlinks on this slide take you to different articles that draw the connection between these things and pain. Um, there, it, there are a lot more articles out there. If you go to PubMed and you Google pain and consequences, you can come up with a lot of stuff. A lot of them are the ones, especially the ones that aren't highlighted, I figured were kind of common sense, uh, if you've ever had pain yourself. So I didn't look for as many articles on those. But sleep. Pain keeps us from sleeping well. Pain activates our HPA axis, our threat response system, which keeps us 
from producing as much melatonin, which keeps us from getting into that deep sleep. Because when our threat response system, our HPA axis is activated, it says, you know what? There may be a danger. You can't be that vulnerable to go into deep sleep. So when someone is in pain, they're not getting adequate sleep. They've found, unfortunately, that lack of adequate sleep increases that HPA axis activation even more because now the brain's going, okay, yeah, now not only are you not safe, but you are sleepy, you're fatigued. So I need to pump out more blood glucose and more norepinephrine to keep you awake. And it's a negative downward spiral. When people's HPA axis is activated, overactivated, um, they will likely experience over a period of time increases in systemic inflammation and decreases in pain tolerance. So their pain goes up. That is the long way of saying sleep hygiene. This is one of the easiest hacks, I guess, for helping people cope with pain. Um, And it's going to be important to look at ergonomics. You know, if they're having pain, you know, they need to figure out how to, the right pillow to get, the right mattress to get. And they may need to consult with a a physical therapist or a physiologist or, or somebody to help them figure that out. But it is really important for the spine to stay in alignment. I have scoliosis and, you know, all kinds of back problems. So I can attest to the fact that a good sleeping situation makes a world of difference. If you're in pain when you're sleeping or you're waking up and your arms numb or something, that is not quality sleep. So we want to help them address uh, ergonomics as well as sleep hygiene. But in order to get good sleep, they have to be able to reduce their pain enough that they can actually get to sleep. And that for some people will involve uh, pharmacology, maybe um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, your NSAIDs or something else. But right before bed, when they're trying to sleep, if they're going to take medications, that's probably one of the most crucial times in order to ensure they can get a good night's sleep. For some people, it may be muscle relaxants. You know, there's a lot of different uh, drugs out there that can help address people's pain. And if they're only taking them, you know, once a day, like right before bed, you know, the chances of significant negative repercussions are relatively low. Um, What's more damaging is not getting quality sleep. We want to work with them on other things they can do to reduce their pain before they sleep. And that's not one of your typical sleep hygiene things, but it is important. And that can be, you know, maybe ice or use a heating pad on the area before you go to sleep. Stretching can be helpful. Obviously, they need to clear it with their physical therapist or their doctor before they start stretching or doing anything that might tax those joints. But encouraging them to identify, you know, list, what are the things that keep me from getting good sleep? And then start knocking them off one at a time. Um, And they've also got analgesic rubs that can be used. That Some of them are super helpful. Pain is another impact of pain. When we have pain in one area, it can cause pain in other areas because, you know, if you have a bad shoulder, you may, you know, baby that arm. And because you're not walking the same way or doing the same things that you normally would, 
other muscles, other joints, other things in your body may get out of whack. So you may start having pain in other places. Um, you often see uh, people who've been ignoring or haven't taken care of an injury develop pain in other areas. Uh, because they've been altering their gait or something. So it is important for them to recognize that it is vital to address the pain that they're experiencing in order to prevent, you know, pain uh, syndromes other places. Medication side effects can be a real drag. Um, opioids often contribute to fatigue in a lot of people, sometimes confusion. NSAIDs can upset people's stomachs, which increase pain. You know, this is yet another area where you've got pain and can be really frustrating for some people. So we need to help them identify, again, if they're having medication side effects, what are those? And then talk with their doctor about ways, you know, are there other options they can take that won't have those side effects? Is there something they can do to buffer against those side effects? Fatigue is a biggie. Not only do people who have pain experience fatigue because they're probably not sleeping well? But when we're in pain, it is it often feels like, if it doesn't actually, take more energy and more effort to do things. Now remember, with pain, there are alterations in dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. In depression, there are alterations in dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. And fatigue is a symptom of both pain as well as depression. Hmm. Things that make you think. Uh, so we do want to help people identify how to cope with their fatigue. We may not may be able to make it go away completely. For some people, they find that antidepressants may be helpful. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't want to go the pharmacology route. And, and that's cool. So we want to help them identify what is it that helps with your fatigue? What helps you energy? What contributes to your fatigue? And what can we do about it? When is, when are your energy bursts during the day? You know, for me, my energy burst is first thing in the morning. And I know that I will get progressively fatigued throughout the day. And I've got to, you know, I arrange my schedule that way. You know, other people are night owls and, and that's cool too, but they need to be more sensitive to their personal circadian rhythms to capitalize on the times when they are energetic. They need to identify things that contribute to their fatigue. Um, Newton had that law, a body in motion tends to stay in motion, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. Well, people who sit or stay um, immobile, you know, they lay on the couch, they lay in bed, they're on bed rest for a long period of time. A lot of times they start feeling more fatigued. They start, and it actually does take a little bit more effort to start moving because your joints start seizing up if you sit still for long enough. You know, I'm not talking a few hours. I'm talking days on end. Um, it can be really difficult Another thing that contributes to fatigue, especially if you're not moving around a lot, and especially if you're staying inside, is you're going to have circadian rhythm disruption. And your circadian rhythms help regulate when your cortisol is released, and you're supposed to have a cortisol spike in the morning that gives you enough energy to get out of bed and says, hey, let's get on with the day. But that cortisol is supposed to go down throughout the day. And towards the end of the day, your body's supposed to start making melatonin to help you get ready for sleep. And that is largely controlled by 
sunlight and by your activities, which is why part of sleep hygiene is creating a sleep routine. The same things you do, just like with kids, we bring them home from school, we let them play, they eat dinner, take a bath, read a book, go to bed. And those activities actually help set the circadian rhythm. Physical changes, weight changes um, can result from pain. If you've got a lot of pain, if you can't move or you're not able to move as much and you start putting on weight or on the other side, you start wasting, you know, losing muscle mass and stuff because you can't do the things you used to do. That can be really hard on some people's self-esteem. If they have to have ports or pumps installed for IVs or insulin or whatever, um, or if they have to have an, an ostomy bag, any of those sorts of things may contribute to uh, depression, anxiety, frustration, grief that they may have to deal with. Another th physical change that we often don't think about with pain is hair loss. And you're like, hair loss? Yes. When we are stressed, we lose more hair. When we're pregnant, because it's a stressor on our body, we lose more hair. But when we are exceedingly stressed, our body tends to not make as much hair and we tend to lose hair more quickly. So people can experience hair thinning and hair loss as a result of extended stress. And this can be devastating if they are very proud of their locks. I mean, it's one of the first things that people see about you. So if they are concerned or self-conscious about that, that can also be something that we need to help them address, help them recognize why stress management is so important to helping them achieve their goals of happiness. If hair loss is a problem um, or a concern for them, then stress management will be one of those tools in their toolbox to help their body start producing more of that. Loss of mobility can be a real frustrating aspect of pain, whether it's you can't move, you can't walk from one area to the other without pain, you can't walk upstairs without pain. You know, the, those are things, when, my, when I hurt my knee a few weeks, no, a few months ago, um, I couldn't go up and down stairs for the longest time. And it was really frustrating because there are things I've got to do every day that involve going up and down stairs. And I had, every time one of those things came up for about six weeks, I had to call my kids because I couldn't get up and down the stairs until my knee healed. Um, and that was, I felt guilty about that. I was angry about that. I felt frustrated about that. So we do want to recognize that loss of mobility and loss of prior functioning, whatever people used to do, if it's temporary, may involve a sense of frustration and anger and even guilt. If it is permanent, there's also a grieving process that they need to go through. If they've lost mobility, maybe they have a stroke and they lose mobility in their arm. Now I'm going to put the mood things all together. I'm going to squish them so we get through this in an hour. Depression, anxiety, anger, irritability, and grief are all huge issues for people when they're experiencing pain. Depression, that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. We need to help people feel empowered and hopeful that something can change. Maybe they won't, you know, completely ever get rid of the pain, but they will have good days and bad days. Journaling can be super helpful for this, where they rank, rank their pain on a scale of, I like a four scale, 
because it's easy enough to document, you know, no pain at all, a little pain, moderate pain, I'm in agony. You know, most people can differentiate between those four things pretty reliably. Uh, when you start getting too many anchor points, people have difficulty with um, intercession reliability. But whatever you want to use, that can be helpful so people can look back over their diary and see, oh, yeah, I remember last Tuesday actually was a really, really a pretty good day. Uh, Anything that they can do that empowers them, keeping that list of things that help them feel better, th keeping that list of things that make them happy and encouraging them to do that. All of those things are really important to contributing to hope and empowerment. Those are the two words that you really want to focus on. Less on the word depression and more on hope and empowerment. Anxiety creeps up. Because when people are in pain, especially if it's chronic, may worry about rejection from other people. They may worry that the pain is going to get worse or never go away or it, you know, is going to turn into something else that is deadly or, you know, people's um, thoughts can become very catastrophic when they are feeling what feels to them at the time like catastrophic pain. So we do want to help them identify any cognitive distortions they're having and use cognitive challenging questions. Number one, am I, what am I worried about? You know, I'm worried that this person is going to reject me because of my pain, or I'm worried that this is going to get a lot worse, or I'm worried that I won't be able to cope with it. Okay. They write down their worry statement and then they look and identify the facts for and against that statement. What are the facts supporting that? Let's get out of emotional reason because when we're reasoning emotionally, when I'm scared that somebody is going to reject me, then, you know, I'm, I'm making assumptions. So we're looking for facts here. What are the facts that this is going to happen? The next step is to look at extreme language and see if we're confusing possibility with probability. Could this get worse? Well, just about anything could get worse, unfortunately. But what is the probability that this is going to get dramatically worse? And encourage them to find facts and information to support that. Uh, encourage them to look at the bigger picture. Sometimes they're just focusing on, I woke up this morning and I was in agony. And that means my pain is back. And, you know, they can really get revved up about what's going on. If they look at the bigger picture and, you know, sort of backward chain, they can look at what was it that I did yesterday? Did I do anything that may have made my pain worse that, you know, I could have probably reasonably foreseen that that was going to be a thing. You know, maybe they went to a family reunion and they were up on their feet all day long and picking up grandkids or something. And then they wake up the next morning and their pain is a lot worse. Well, you did something that your body's not used to, or maybe you overdid it a little bit. So it's important for them to be able to look back and identify exacerbating factors so it doesn't seem like the pain is uncontrollable and come from out of nowhere. Keeping a good journal of, or diary or log, whatever you want to call it, of what they're doing can be helpful. But if they wake up in the morning or it feels like all of a sudden, all of a sudden their pain got worse, having them stop and work backwards and figure out if there's something that happened, you know, in the past 24 hours that may have contributed to a flare up. And it could even be just an increase in stress that is 
increasing systemic inflammation, but it's important for them to be able to start seeing connections because when they see connections, then again, they've got that sense of more of a sense of empowerment. They're like, okay, well, I see what happened and I can take steps and I recognize that, you know, I overdid it yesterday. So today may be bad, but tomorrow's probably going to be better. Uh, they can have anger and irritability at the situation because it's not fair. They may have anger and irritability at other people because other people don't understand. They may have anger and irritability at other people because other people don't have pain. They may, and that kind of goes with jealousy and resentment too. They may have um, grief issues, especially if it's a long-standing chronic pain that, you know, they're, they're going to live with for the rest of their life, like rheumatoid arthritis, there are grief and adjustment issues they need to go through to figure out, okay, how am I going to live a rich and meaningful life and have rheumatoid arthritis? You know, what steps am I going to take? And what is important? This keeps going back to that acceptance and commitment therapy thing. What things are important in my rich and meaningful life? And how can I have those and rheumatoid arthritis or this chronic pain? Withdrawal is an impact of pain. And we really want to encourage people to not withdraw from their social supports. Social pain and social distress can increase pain, but social support can mitigate pain quite a bit. There may be self-esteem changes. So we want to encourage people to look at themselves holistically, globally, instead of focusing on what they can't do now, encourage them to focus on what are 10 things that they still can do. Give them numbers. You know, you, when you write treatment plans, you're supposed to, you know, give numbers. Give them, you know, what are five things or 10 things that you can still do right now? What are five or 10 things that are still good about you? You know, maybe you can't throw, throw the baseball with your son like you used to. Okay. So that's out. What can you do? Loss of social support or on the other hand, paternalism. Sometimes people with chronic pain, especially ones that are depressed and irritable, may push others away because they're complaining all the time and they're depressed all the time and their social support starts to throw up their hands and go, I, I don't know what to do for you anymore. That's important to help them identify their impact on their social environment. On the other hand, there's paternalism and sometimes their caregivers will all of a sudden see them as super fragile and they won't be able to do things on their own and they may feel, you know, suffocated or oppressed or helpless. So we do want to pay attention to that. Inability to engage in prior important activities. Well, let's see if we can help them figure out modification. With my knee, I can't run anymore. And that, you know, I've been a runner all of my life and that was devastating to me. But I can still cycle. I can still do, I can still swim. I can still do the elliptical machine. Yes, running was fun. And I really enjoyed it. I can power walk still. I just can't, I just can't run. So I can still be outside on the trails if I want, or I can get a good cardio workout in the gym, but I have to compromise. It may not be the, my ideal situation, but I can still accomplish my goals. Loss of independence is one of those that we need to pay attention to. What can we help this person with if they can't 
because when they have flare-ups with their pain, they can't do things anymore. When people have migraines, you know, sometimes the nausea and the light sensitivity and everything, they can't even make their own meals. Um, they can't get out of bed or, you know, other types of pain. They may not be able to, you know, put on necklaces or do their hair. So what can we do to help that person you know, with those things. So it's not so hard. There are clasps on necklaces now that are magnetic and I mean, they're powerful magnets. Um, and I got those for my grandmother and we switched out all of the clasps on all of her jewelry and that helped her because now she could dress herself again with her, with her jewelry. Vocational problems. We want to look and you can go to the Jan network. It's the job, job accommodation network. Um, and that's online and look for reasonable modifications that can people can uh, can request at their job in order to facilitate them doing the job that they love with their current condition. Financial hardships, medical expenses, job loss, or environmental modifications, like having to add ramps or grab bars or, or things like that, that can get expensive. It's important to help people identify any community resources or social service resources that are available to help them with that. We do want to make sure people have access to nutritious food because the neurotransmitters that will help the norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, endogenous opioids, all of that stuff is made from the foods we eat. So if they don't have good food, they're going to have a hard time with pain management. Um, physical, sexual, and emotional relationship problems. Family counseling, couples counseling can be super helpful here. So assessing chronic pain, and I'm going to go through some of this really quickly. Um, one of the best assessment instruments is the McGill Pain Questionnaire, and you can click on that, or you can go to SAMHSA Tip 54, and uh, there are a bunch of assessment tools that you can find for free there. Assessment of chronic non-cancer pain should document the pain onset, you know, when did it start, the quality, what is it like? Is it pounding, throbbing, stabbing, tingling, burning, and the severity? On a scale, you can give them a temperature scale. On a scale of, you know, cool to really hot, what is the severity? Results of investigations into etiology. We need to make sure that they've gone to the doctor to have this pain assessed to figure out if there's an underlying cause that needs to be addressed. We need to address and document pain-related functional impairment. And that includes things like being able to do their hair, wash their hair, brush their teeth, um, button buttons on a shirt. You know, there's a lot of things, especially if that people have rheumatoid arthritis in their hands. You know, there's a lot of um, things that you don't think of that you can't do if you can't completely grasp your hands. Emotional changes. We want to assess for anxiety, depression, anger, you know, all that stuff, grief. Pre-existing mental health conditions, including trauma or addiction issues that may be made worse by the... Uh, uh, pain issues and cognitive changes, including um, obviously cognitive distortions, extremes of thinking, um, catastrophic thinking, but also attentional capacity. When you're in pain, a lot of times it's hard to focus and memory. When you're having difficulty focusing, it's hard to get stuff into that long-term memory. Beliefs about pain that is experienced, such as what causes it, how long it will last, whether it's curable, what effects it will have in their lives, what treatment might be relevant, and whether it's understood and believed as real 
by clinicians are really important. And you can do a simple ABC cognitive behavioral worksheet with people to identify their underlying beliefs about their pain. And then you can go through them and address the cognitive distortions that may be present one by one. And remember, when you're looking at these thoughts, not only do you want to, you know, evaluate for cognitive distortions, overgeneralizing, catastrophizing, those sorts of things, but you also want to check each belief against facts versus emotional reasoning. See if it is based in fact. We also want to assess the family response to the pain, whether they're supportive, enabling, or rejecting. Interestingly, parents' cognitive responses to pain um, in, may include parent pain, catastrophizing, and exaggerated negative pain appraisals. So they, Junior may say, oh, my pain's, you know, not so bad. And the parent may say, no, Junior's pain is terrible. Uh, so we do want to differentiate you know, between parental pain catastrophizing and what the patient is actually reporting. <coughs> the parent's cognitive responses to pain have been found to influence both the parent's emotional reactions to pain and the child's functional disability. A lot of times because the parent is telling the child, you can't do that. So we do need to explore, you know, maybe even parent-child interaction therapy here. We also want to look at the environmental consequences of their pain. And a lot of these we already covered on the impact of pain. You want to go through that slide. It was slide eight. And identify any impacts of pain the person may be experiencing. <coughs> and you want people to complete a daily pain assessment. And that's that log that I was talking about. Using descriptive language, what was the pain like? Numerical scales, one to four to identify how bad the pain was, how long it lasted, and exacerbating and mitigating factors that they noticed that day. See if they did anything that made it better and anything that made it worse. Because what works today may not work tomorrow. In chronic care models, when we're dealing with people who have chronic pain, <clears throat> we want to shift from acute attention to episodic and, and episodic issues to ongoing proactive care. Instead of waiting till there's a flare-up to do anything, we want to have them proactively trying to prevent the pain and mitigating anything that might make it worse. So we want to prevent it from getting worse or developing other conditions like depression or addiction. Uh, we want to emphasize the patient's role in their own pain self-management, which this comes back down to that empowerment word again. We can't take away their pain. They can't sometimes take away their pain, but there's a lot of things they can do to improve their situation. The goal of self-management interventions are to improve knowledge about the condition and intervention options, increase their confidence in their ability to experience less pain and leverage what the person can do to promote personal health. And that goes back to nutrition, sleep, circadian rhythms, um, and even for a lot of people, gentle exercise. We also want to help them improve their motivation and problem solving rather than simply complying with the doctor or caregiver's advice. We want them to be motivated to be curious. What might make this better today? You know, be curious, experiment, try different things. Patients need to master six fundamental self-management tasks. Solving problems, including preventing pain and relapse. Making decisions about what they can and cannot do. And 
logically based on their pain level and their expectations for if I do this, am I going to be, you know, in excruciating pain tomorrow. Effectively using resources, forming a patient-provider partnership where they actually communicate and say, hey, this is working or this isn't working. Make action plans for health behavior change and self-tailoring, recognizing that you know, there are going to be exacerbations and remissions, and they are unique individuals. So what I talk about with this person over here may not work for this person over here. Non-pharmacological tools. Um, and there's a lot of research on non-pharmacological pain intervention. Acupressure, acupuncture, uh, qigong, and tai chi have all been found to be very helpful at reducing pain. It doesn't eliminate it, but um, acupressure and acupuncture work by clearing um, energy blockages. You know, I don't really understand a lot about them, but there is a lot of research on them as promising practices for the treatment of both addiction um, mood disorders, as well as pain. Guided imagery. There are a lot of different types of guided imagery. For example, envisioning your pain like a, uh, like a radio and turning that dial down on the pain or envisioning your pain as a color, maybe red, and seeing that color, you know, gradually dissipate or turn from red to blue. You know, there are a lot of different things that you can do and you can go online to find um, guided imagery for pain. Search for that. You'll come up with a lot of different ideas. I also have um, a video on the YouTube channel on uh, guided imagery for pain. Interestingly, omega-3s are really helpful for pain, including autoimmune inflammation-related pain, migraine-related pain, and um, menstrual-related pain. So, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought of the last two being associated with omega-3s, but they are. Dietary approaches with beneficial effects on gut microbiota and gut-brain axis, including adhering to a low glycemic index diet because they found high glycemic index diets promote inflammation. Vitamin D, making sure that level is normal. Omega-3s and probiotics. They found this to be helpful in multiple studies. They're speculating because if, since a lot of our neurotransmitters and um, pain chemicals and other things are made in our gut, um, or at least partially made in our gut, if our gut microbiota is not functioning well, then it's not going to be efficient at producing those things, which can lead to a insufficiency of or an imbalance in neurotransmitters and hormones. Weight loss can also be helpful for a variety of different issues, not just, you know, lower body joints, because obesity is related to systemic inflammation. A lot of times obesity is also related to high glycemic index diets, but they have found that obesity itself, regardless of diet, um, is correlated with greater amounts of systemic inflammation. We want to discuss treatment goals with the patient that include reducing pain, maximizing function, improving their quality of life, addressing co-occurring mental health issues. If they're maintaining depression, if they're maintaining anxiety, they're going to be maintaining 
HPA axis dysregulation, and some level of systemic inflammation, most likely. So we need to address those in addition to whatever's actually causing the pain. And incorporating suitable non-pharmacologic and complementary therapies for pain management. The, another thing that we can do is to work with patients to help them develop acceptance, deciding that pain is. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. It's, it's there. It's kind of like, you know, I've got brown eyes. It just is. Um, and choosing not to focus or dwell on it. They found that that leads to lower pain intensity, less pain-related anxiety and avoidance, less depression, less physical and psychosocial disability, more daily uptime and better work status. Um, so those are, and it makes sense. If you're dwelling on the pain, then you're going to focus on it and your mind is going to go into six different directions trying to understand what's causing it, which may cause anxiety. If you're constantly worried about the pain, then you may avoid doing a lot of things and reduce your quality of life. So recognizing that pain is, you know, there are going to be some days that I've got a little more pain and choosing wisely you know, what you're going to do and stepping into it gradually instead of, you know, cleaning the whole house, maybe, you know, swiffering one day. And if the next day you wake up and you're not really, really sore, then maybe you can do a little bit more the next day, but gradually increasing activity. There are many similarities between pain, mood, and addictive disorders. Integrated concurrent biopsychosocial treatment is vital. And obviously, you know, I've said it before, um, but I don't think I said it in this presentation. We cannot recommend dietary changes to our clients. We can inform them that there's some research that shows that, you know, dietary modifications can be helpful, but they probably need to consult with a physician or nutritionist before making any changes to their nutritional stuff. That just helps us stay within our scope of practice. Mood impacts pain, which impacts life satisfaction. Recovery supports realistic beliefs and identifies controllable factors, which leads to enhanced outcomes. Patients with current addictions or mental health issues also need concurrent treatment. So focus on empowerment. Help them see what strengths they have. Help them identify, keep a log to identify exacerbating and mitigating factors and help them identify things that increase their happiness. So even on those days when they're having a flare up, they can find some element of joy, even if it's just for a few minutes at a time. Alrighty. Thank you for being here with me today. Are there any questions? A lot of the stuff we talked about today is really practical, very basic steps that clients can take. And it's not typically associated with pain management, so to speak, but it's important to consider the whole person and that's where the sleep and the nutrition and the sunlight and regulating that HPA axis to reduce the inflammatory cytokines all come. Alrighty, everybody. I'll see you on Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.